So with the advent of technologies such as corneal cross-linking that can control progression of the disease, we now have the ability to preserve vision and reduce the number of keratoplasties. As such, early diagnosis becomes that much more critical. A number of advanced technologies are either currently available or soon to be available clinically that will allow us to, to achieve this goal. Considering that more and more eye care practitioners have access to placebo-based corneal topography in their practices, this has become the most common form of advanced technology utilized to diagnose keratoconic patients. So what do you look for on your topography maps in more specific terminology that would indicate the presence of disease? And also, how do you utilize this technology in your practice? In other words, what patients do you perform topography on? Um, anybody who is a contact lens wearer, we certainly want to make sure that we're monitoring that over time. So we, we always like to get topographies on those individuals. For certain, anybody that's going into orthokeratology, because it's part of the way that we actually monitor it over, or the cornea over time. And for any of those individuals that we raise or the, the red flag of suspicion gets raised, and uh, Andy brought up some of those earlier today. So again, just in your basic exam, what are the things that cause red flags, increasing oblique cylinder, all these types of things. So those are the patients that we order the topography for. So what are the, some of the things that we can kind of be on the lookout for? Well, well there's several things. And the, the good thing about these things is that um, most of them are not unique to any specific topographer. Most of them are very generic and you can look at this information and see it from any topographer that you might have. So certainly, if anybody's measuring steeper corneas than 47 diopters, that usually raises a red flag in my mind. Um, one of the other things too is, just taking a broad overview at the um, steepness readings on the superior versus the inferior cornea, I think are so important. And a difference of 1.5 diopters or greater starts to raise some red flags. And in addition to that, if you're monitoring these individuals over time, I think that's one of the most powerful pieces of any of these technologies is that you can detect change over time. Anything at one instance is good but measuring it over time is, is even better. And I think that's really the leverage that we have with topography. So Barry, honestly, I'm gonna answer this truthfully. I don't use topography all that much because I'm very fortunate to have corneal tomography in my different practices, but I, I do find that it's essential to check posterior elevation in our patients when we're looking for the risk of keratoconus. Although corneal topography is becoming more common, there are practices still that don't have a corneal topographer. But recently, in the last few years, there are some great programs that have a very cost-effective corneal topography system that practices can include. So I would encourage those who don't have corneal topography to look into it. There are systems that include not just topography, but evaluation of things like the meibomian glands and the tear film and things like that. We have a number of those multifunctional instruments and one of them incorporates autorefraction, aberrometry and placido topography all in one. And we actually utilize this system as our routine autorefractor. So in essence, every patient who is autorefracted for a, even a routine eye exam, 
we will be able to look at topography, we'll be able to assess their high order aberration levels, uh, and therefore, we're just running these uh, kinds of measurements on much higher numbers of patients. With the advent of corneal tomography, which allows us to measure not only the anterior corneal shape, but also perhaps even more importantly early on in the disease, the posterior corneal shape and global corneal thickness, there are numerous ways in which clinicians utilize this information in detecting keratoconus. Can you please review with us some of the key outcomes from shine flu corneal tomography that you use clinically in detecting keratoconus? Is that, as you can see from this picture up here, um, alluding to corneal thickness, I always like to look to see where the thinnest part of the cornea is. Where is it located? Um, obviously, we all know that the thinnest part of the cornea should be relatively close to the center or the apex of um, the normally shaped aspheric cornea. And so um, also, um, as you can see here, this um, one of the things that these shine flu cameras can do is give you a global thickness uh, image. So it can tell you the corneal thickness at exact specific points throughout the cornea. And so one of the things that I look at is to make sure that the progression from the thinnest point in the cornea out to the periphery has a smooth transition um, uh, as it increases asymptotically in its thickness um, from center to periphery. And if it doesn't, well, that's an indicator that this patient may have keratoconus. So that's number one. Um, number two, um, there's some bullet points over here. And that's, that's all part of the, uh, the BAD score, uh, the Bellin Ambrosio. Michael Bellin, Renato Ambrosio developed this score. Um, I'm sure you'll talk about it in the future. Um, and basically what it is that it analyzes how that percentage thickness of the cornea and also the elevation and curvature all map up together uh, to analyze this. So wh where is the thinnest part of the cornea? How does it progress out to the periphery? Um, does the elevation values fall within some normative data that we have, normative tables? So Gloria, shine fluke tomography can detect keratoconus in what would be termed preclinical phases along the continuum of the disease. So can you tell us how that may show in a case where vision is still 2020 and standard clinical testing appears normal. In just in the last couple of weeks, I've had the opportunity of seeing a few patients who present with uncorrected 2020, maybe 2025 vision. And what happened is when I conducted corneal mapping with a tomographer, I found that they had keratoconus. Um, and not so much on the anterior surface. Although if you look really carefully, I did see you know, slight asymmetry, but it was, you could kind of look at it and go, mm, it's not very clear. But when you looked at the posterior elevation, you were seeing um, changes there of about maybe plus 25, plus 30, which is minimal, but could explain the irregular cornea. and. When you look at the other eye, um, so this, this patient presented and he was 20, 30 uncorrected in one eye and 20, 20 in the other. And he clearly had keratoconus on the front 
um, of the cornea and also elevation on the posterior surface. But it was that eye that was seeing 2020, and this eye carried him through for so many years. And um, in his history, he said, "Oh, I just don't see well out, out of that eye." But you know, it wasn't that bad. So this patient in his 30s essentially cruised through his teens and 20s with very slight progression. But um, no one ever really diagnosed him with keratoconus until we conducted the uh, corneal tomography scan. And I think we are potentially missing a lot of mild keratoconus patients because we're not seeing the elevation on the posterior surface of the cornea. And it's just to show that they can be 20-20. And I refracted this patient and he was Plano and he had posterior changes. So I think it's just um, kind of a, a reminder that even patients seeing 20-20, you have to be cautious about uh, corneal changes. The other point that can be derived from this conversation is the controversy over whether there can be true unilateral keratoconus, or is our diagnosis just limited by the technologies we're using? So I know as we have incorporated more and more sensitive diagnostic technologies, those cases that we would term unilateral keratoconus are becoming fewer and far between. And many of us do feel that keratoconus is truly a bilateral disease, only limited by our diagnosing capabilities, our diagnostic capabilities for the less involved eye. My opinion is that Avellino does not have a right eye genetic test or a left eye genetic test. Um, and that is that this is a disease. If it's true, if we're all agreeing that this is a, you know, there is a genetic etiology to this disease, uh, where it manifests is one thing, but whether you're positive for the disease is, uh, is, is, is the whole body. And so it's really important to know where that, you know, does that patient, is that patient positive for the disease? If they are, and we do genetic testing on them, and they could be told or you know educated um, that they have the potential to have offspring with a more severe form of that disease, I think that's incredibly, incredibly important. And and you know now that this is on the market, now genetic testing is out there. It's part of our responsibility to uh, to educate patients. Can you briefly review some of these advanced technologies that help us in early diagnosis before? potentially keratoconus can have a negative impact on a patient's uh, visual function. Certainly, one of the biggest diagnostic factors happens to be epithelial thickness. Um, epithelial thickness distribution is affected in keratoconus by having thinning over the apex of the cornea and thickening around the base. Essentially, epithelium wants to normalize the corneal shape, and to do that, it creates a thinner spot and a thicker spot to be able to create a flatter appearance of the corneal curvature. Uh, this was first really published by uh, Reinstein and his group using uh, high, uh, ultra high resolution uh, ultrasound. Um, and uh, then Lee's group and uh, many others have uh, looked at optical uh, coher uh, coherence tomography, so uh, OCT, um, with its just impressively high uh, resolution. Um, the other one that we would look at is uh, wavefront aberrometry. Wavefront aberrometry is on its own a non-specific but highly sensitive uh, method of looking for uh, abnormalities in the visual system. Um, essentially looking at specific aberrations such as uh, the third, fourth, and fifth order aberrations, but most importantly, uh, vertical coma and uh, 
uh, uh, trefoil. Um, obviously, having uh, higher order aberrations in total is a very important component of this, uh, but specifically uh, vertical coma being the most prevalent single aberration uh, present. Now, it is a nonspecific uh, metric on its own, but when you combined it uh, with shine flow tomography or posito just topography, uh, it then gives you the ability to differentiate where those uh, aberrations are coming from. With uh, you know uh, anterior surface only uh, posito just topography, you know whether or not it's the surface of the eye or any of the structures internal from the surface. Whereas with shine flow tomography based scans. Uh, in combination with uh, that wafer and aberrometry, you can say, is it the cornea or is it coming from internal on the eye, which then makes it highly specific and sensitive. The next one is corneal biomechanical testing. Now, corneal biomechanical testings have, um, uh, you know, based on the, uh, you know, the device being used, they have been debated as their, uh, you know, ability to very accurately tell whether or not a cornea is keratoconic or not. But when you look at frank keratoconus versus a normal cornea, they're clearly weaker. And if you look at some of the, uh, the work that Dupes has done looking at customized metrics of reading corneal strength based on that kind of original device, that uh, ORA device, uh, they find that many of those metrics are actually statistically significant in finding early keratoconus. Now, there have since been uh, evolutions in these devices, such as uh, shine flow tomography-based devices, such as the Corvus, which gives you a visual analysis of this eye. And, uh, you know, we find things like the amplitude at which a, uh, uh, rather, the, uh, the amplitude at which a cornea deforms or the speed at which a cornea uh, deforms and recovers as being highly statistically significant for looking at these biomechanics. Our panelists have discussed a number of advanced technologies that allow us to diagnose keratoconus at earlier and earlier phases. But one of the most exciting new developments is our ability to look beyond clinical findings and actually delve into the underlying genetic basis of this disease. The Avagen test by Avellino can now allow us to gain tremendous information about a patient's genetic profile as it relates to keratoconus. So can you please briefly review the Avagen test for us. This is interesting, Barry, because when you look at keratoconus just in general, there's not a gene that we can identify and say, yep, this is the person that has keratoconus or will develop it. It's a combination of genetic risk factors. And these 75 genes have been identified and there's been over 2,300 variants on these genes that have been identified. You combine all of that information and you have a pool of information on that patient and that patient's level of risk for keratoconus. And based on the variants and over 600,000 patient tissue samples, and you've created this essentially risk score that goes from zero to 100 with zero or even lower than zero being negative or actually a protective factor in developing keratoconus versus those individuals that score closer to 100 that just have a higher risk of having keratoconus. So, so this plus the supplementing of the technologies that we have in our practice are gonna give us almost all of the information we need to set up what I consider to be the most appropriate treatment strategies and plans for patients moving forward. Because ultimately, it gives us 
more credence for those individuals who may have higher risk and lower initial uh, uh, corneal findings versus those individuals who may have a lower risk and some um, mild, subtle findings on the cornea. Can patients with no corneal findings go on to develop keratoconus? I definitely agree that patients without any corneal findings, like the case Gloria just mentioned, can definitely go on to develop keratoconus. So I think of keratoconus like dry eye. Every patient I'm evaluating for dry eye and ocular surface disease, and every patient that comes in, I'm looking for keratoconus. And it's a diagnosis that I'm always searching for. Now, I work in different populations, um, different patient populations. So at two of them, I'm very fortunate and I have advanced technologies. At one, I don't have anything. So some of the things that I utilize are retinoscopy. So important, looking for scissors reflex. I think that's very highly diagnostic. I have an auto refractor where I look for astigmatism and irregularity of the Myers for those patients and really searching for corneal findings that keratoconus can definitely be there without any corneal findings, which is why it's so exciting to have this new option for genetic testing to detect keratoconus, especially if there is a family history. And I'd have to say that I think every single keratoconus patient at one point had no corneal findings. Individuals are not born with keratoconus when they're infants. It develops some point later in their life, um, typically in the early teens, where it tends to be more aggressive. But I think all cases of keratoconus are progressive keratoconus. And it's just a matter of when that those signs are detected. It's our mission to determine these findings as soon as possible. And actually, when we start to see the signs on their cornea through the slit lamp and with our technology, it's, it's often too late. So with genetic testing, I think it's so exciting and it actually brings a sense of relief to me. And I think um, patients who again, are interested in having children if they have keratoconus, because now we actually have tools to help us uh, diagnose, not diagnose, but know the risk for keratoconus before those signs develop. What is your recommended diagnostic workup protocol and what preemptive tests are indicated for various groups of corneal refractive surgery candidates to maximize your ability to diagnose the risk of keratoconus either detecting frank disease or determining keratoconus suspects? Keratoconus is a disease where light, the, 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 the clear path of light entering the eye to get to the retina is somehow disturbed. And so I think on that list, that bulleted list, I think one of the most underrated tests that we have available to us is wavefront aberometry, specifically really just looking at a point spread function. And you know, from the refractive surgery world, one of the tests that we used to do many years back, and it's still being done today, um, is evaluating that uh, point spread function on the wave scan that was developed by Vizex many years ago. And one of the things that we knew is that if we had a wave scan that had an aberometry reading greater than a certain amount, that set off bells and whistles in our head that said, you know, light is not acting normally inside of the eye for some reason. 
likely in a young patient, that's probably not a retinal issue. It's not a vitreous issue. Um, it's probably not a lens issue unless there was some sort of trauma or you know early cataract formation, but it very much could be a corneal deformation issue. And so um, that um, increased wavefront aberometry, um, specifically seeing an increased amount of coma um, in the eye, I think was a, always a, a pretty big red flag. Corneal tomography, to be perfectly honest with you, I can't go to work in a refractive surgery center if I don't have a corneal tomographer with me. OCT is great, and I think OCT is going to come a lot further um, in its analyzation to analyze refractive surgery patients. So those are my favorites. Obviously, I'll always do a corneal topography because it does give us good information. Uh, but um, at the end of the day, um, you know, we're taking pictures and looking at what is today. Um, with the genetic testing, um, you know, when you're doing genetic testing, that's more of a predictor of what's to come. And so um, that will help us out a lot. My, my go-tos are the corneal tomographer, uh, wavefront aberometry, and again, probably the most important test to me is a good old-fashioned refraction, seeing if I can get a sharp 20-20 out of the patient. Um, we've been using the keratoconic risk score table um, with our anterior segment OCT or pachymetry scans, and it has been an absolutely revealing instrument. So again, this is something that most clinicians have. If they, if they have OCT, they have anterior segment OCT. So utilizing some of these risk tables are, are great ways to just capture and gather more information on risk moving forward. Consensus finding number five. All panelists believe that corneal tomography is the most accurate diagnostic tool to detect keratoconus prior to loss of visual function. Consensus finding number six. All panelists recommend corneal tomography for all corneal refractive surgery candidates to help identify keratoconus suspects. Consensus finding number seven. On average, 11% of all corneal refractive surgery candidates are likely to be identified as keratoconus suspects preoperatively. 10 of 13 believe that more than 5% of all corneal refractive surgery candidates are likely to be identified as keratoconus suspects preoperatively. We have now the ability to order uh, easy to administer, highly informative genetic testing for keratoconus uh, uh, information. So the question becomes, when do you suggest performing this test? So can you share with us your thoughts on the clinical findings and the patient, patient subjective or historical data that would lead you to order an Avagen genetic test for keratoconus? And I think one of the interesting things, and the thing I always encourage colleagues to do is, always um, practice to the level of technology that you have in your office. So that's, I think, one of the interesting things about the Avagen test is there's not necessarily a huge capital outlay uh, for the test, so you have ease of accessibility to it. Um, but certainly the things that we talked about earlier, increasing myopia, progressive myopia, individuals who have against the rule or oblique astigmatism, that's changing or shifting or progressing. Those are early kind of question marks. And those are even the things that kind of pose a clinician to do further testing, the topographies, the OCTs, the, the tomographies, all of the advanced testing. 
And Avigen is one of those pieces of information that we have to help supplement the data that we're collecting on these patients. So regardless of the level of technologies that a clinician has in their practice, everybody really has a place for the genetic testing and the discussion of this with their patients based on what they're currently seeing in their practices and their suspicion for genetic susceptibility to keratoconus. Does having access to this Avigen test impact your approach to your pre-surgical candidacy screening for potential corneal refractive surgery patients you see in your practice? Anytime that we have you know, suspicious findings, we want to go a little bit further, right? Anytime that we see something like a uh, against the rule or oblique astigmatism, right? We, we just did a paper looking at a thousand keratoconus eyes and our review on that, taking a look at their manifest refractions, the vast majority of those individuals were against the rule or oblique. When we looked at the amount of myopia that was present, it was not high. We found that those individuals on average and we looked at individuals from 48 diopters all the way up to 90 diopters. And we found that the average in the group was minus three. The amount of uh, astigmatism that we saw in that entire group, minus three. When we looked at you know, these, uh, our ultimate findings were essentially you know, uh, against the rule of astigmatism and uh, oblique astigmatism. Uh, and any astigmatism greater than uh, a diopter and a half was enough for us to want to trigger getting more testing for that individual. Now, when we go to the ability to have these genetic tests, right, these genetic tests are extremely important to individuals who may not have access to the extreme, uh, you know, levels of, uh, of diagnostic capabilities in some of these most advanced uh, technologies. And certainly in our case, we want to be able to tell whether or not we should touch that cornea or should we decide that a corneal refractive surgery or a corneal based treatment in general should be avoided. So if we apply this beyond just refractive surgery, let's apply this to myopia as well. We have three main, uh, you know, three main modalities to treat myopia at this point. We have atropine, we have orthokeratology and we have soft lenses, right? We have somebody who uh, uh, scores a high risk genetic test uh, for keratoconus. I'm not going to use a modality that manipulates their corneal shape, right? I will go to another modality that doesn't do that, such as atropine or soft contact lenses, so that I don't eliminate that diagnostic factor of their cornea. Consensus finding number eight. On average, 20% of corneal refractive surgery candidates have red flags or corneal concerns that would lead doctors to recommend a genetic test. Nine of 13 believe that at least 25% of corneal refractive surgery candidates have red flags or corneal concerns that would lead doctors to recommend a genetic test. Consensus finding number nine. On average, 94% of corneal refractive surgery candidates who are keratoconus suspects would receive a genetic test. 12 of 13 believe that all corneal refractive surgery candidates who are keratoconus suspects should receive a genetic test. Yes or no, in the best of all possible worlds, if you're doing a workup for a corneal refractive surgical case, 
would you at least make available to every patient the option of taking a genetic test, such as the Avigen test? So let's start with Andy. He says yes. Thumbs yes, up. Yes, I would. Yeah, Gloria? I think. Uh, yeah, I think it's a great option. I just want to see what everybody says. Gloria. Yes. Another yes, John. Yes, I agree with everyone. And Mule. Yeah, Barry, I, I think so. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I would chime in with all of you as well. Um, to me, it, it would be my responsibility if I have this test in my armamentarium that I would at least make it available, not required, but available to every patient that's considering corneal refractive surgery. 